Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. Hello, hello, 203-333-9422. Timothy Egan joins us right now. And uh, we're going to talk about his latest book. He's won the Pulitzer Prize already uh, for being on a team of investigative journalists. He's also written another series of fabulous books. He has a way of digging into, he has a way of digging into relatively unknown historical incidents of real consequence and making them come alive. And this is no different. This is a story Timothy is going to be telling us about the Ku Klux Klan of all things, an organization that I think many of us had hoped was way in the past but a lot of what they do is rearing its ugly head right now into the world. Timothy Egan, welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show. Hello and good morning. Hi, Lisa, and it's great to be with a member of the Connecticut Bar. Oh, yes, I am a mem- very much a member, <laughs> and the New York Bar, and all these, you know, whatever. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, are, are you a lawyer also? A, are you a lawyer no, also? No, but yeah, no I, I'm just a storyteller, but there's a legal twist at the end. The last third of this book is a trial. Um, and I try to write it like a John Grisham-like trial. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm just happy to speak with an attorney because there's a real, real interesting legal confrontation at the end here. Yeah, I, yes, yes. So, so Timothy Egan, so first of all, tell us the title of your book and what is the book about? Go ahead, tell us. So the book's called A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. And, you know, Harry Truman said, the only thing new in this world is the history we do not know. And I got to tell you, Lisa, this is a history I did not know. And thank you for that introduction. I do like to find these stories, excuse me, that are largely untold. And this is one of them. The Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s was at the absolute peak of its power, not the 1870s or the 1960s, but the roaring 20s. And they had six million members. They had four governors. They had four United States senators. They had 75 members of Congress were under their control. They marched 50,000 strong down the streets of Washington, D.C. in a parade in 1925. And they had their eyes set on the White House. So their targets were not just blacks. They always hated African Americans and would then move north of the Great Migration. But this time around, they hated Jews because of the 
uh, immigration of Jews coming from Eastern Europe primarily. They hated Catholics because so many Sicilians had moved to our shores after their great earthquake. 800,000 Italians had moved in 15 years of the new, new century, and they despised them. The Klan did. And they hated um, women who'd just been given – women, socially liberated women – who'd just been given the vote in 1920 and now were enjoying social freedom during prohibition through speakeasies and jazz. So it was a really interesting time for cultures colliding. And as often happens in you know history, the, the great men and women couldn't stop this awful force. It was one woman who was largely written out of the story who stopped them. So let's just talk a little bit about the pathology of the hate itself. What did the Ku Klux yeah. Klan... What did it say that it stood for? What did it say that it was about? What, is, what were what is it? What well, were its tenets? Its mission statement? What what were they trying to do? Yeah, pathology is the right word. Now, six up to six million Americans, Lisa, donned those hoods and robes, and put their hand on a Bible, and they swore out an oath. And this is the direct quote: "To quote, forever uphold white supremacy." Now that term gets thrown around a lot today in a somewhat you know facile way. But white supremacy then was swearing for the rest of your life as a citizen to uphold it. So that was the primary thing. But then, as I said, they expanded the range of hatreds. They talked about 100 percent Americanism. You'd see these signs in the Ford dealership that said, we serve and are sold are serviced by only 100 percent Americans. The slogan of the Klan governor, governor of the state of Colorado, was every man under the Capitol Dome a Klansman. So oh the pathology was, yeah, I mean, they said this openly. This was not a little terror group living under bridges. This was the open, you know, they were, they were absolutely at the peak of their power. So the pathology was the people who weren't like them, the othering of America, all these immigrants that were different from other folks. And it was all about the churn and change of the United States 100 years ago. They also passed eugenics laws. And that eventually led to 30 states having forced sterilization laws of women who were considered promiscuous, sexually promiscuous, of people, you know, alcoholics, um, people born with epilepsy. They could be forcefully sterilized against their will because they were listed as undesirables in the Klan's caste system. So it was a really awful anti-American. You know, Lincoln talked about our better angels. These were our worst angels. Um you know, categorizing Americans by, you know, not just skin color and origin, but by, you know, your religion and how you acted socially. So, Timothy Egan, let's just be honest about this. You've got six million white people. I venture to say that many of them were for, from German or other European descent. Their parents and grandparents were immigrants, too. That's the American story. Isn't that amazing? Because everybody who's who's a citizen here eventually right. came from somewhere else, unless you were Native American. Right. So and these I'm, people were I'm, emphatically not that. So right. did anybody ever sort of understand the irony and hypocrisy of this? Yeah, I'll tell you who did. There was an Irish-American lawyer, good for the good barristers, named Patrick O'Donnell, who was an immigrant from Ireland. And he had fled a country where the Brits spent 800 years trying to deculturize them, dehumanize them, take away their language, their religion, and their sense of self. When he came to America, he saw the Klan trying to do the exact same thing. They said, I'm an immigrant. I believe in this country. This is the country that's based on an idea, not on tribes. 
based on freedom, not on what religion you belong to. So he was one of many people that took up the anti-Klan cause against this incredibly powerful force. You know, and what he did is he printed the names of all – once a week his newspaper tolerance would print these names of these Klansmen and Klans women. There was a women's brigade, and there was a children's brigade. It was called the Ku Klux Kitties. Aye, little aye. kids donning – yeah, yeah, donning robes in these parades while they – and they'd go to little dens and learn how who to hate. He would unmask them by printing these lists, Patrick O'Donnell did. But even that wasn't enough to bring down the Klan. Again, it took the woman who's at the heart of my story – a sort of accidental heroine in a court of law who eventually brought them down. So, Timothy Egan, let's hear about this particular grand dragon of Indiana, this heinous individual and, and this story. Go ahead. Tell the story. Incredible. Yeah, the guy's name is D.C. Stevenson. And he, at least he's an American archetype. You know, he, whether it's the music man or someone else, you can see the echoes of these, these characters running through our history and our culture. He rolls into Indiana in 1921, as he said, a nobody from nowhere, just an absolute drifter. But the guy had the gift of gab, and he said things that people wanted to hear, and he played to their fears, and he made all oh, these people believe that their, their failures in life were not their fault, but the fault of these others, these others, these new people trying to come into our country, these, these people, African-Americans moving from the South. And within four short years, he went from a nobody to the – he says, he said, I am the law, a man who was above the law in India. He ran the state. No one disputes this. This is, this is what blew me away because I read all the stories and headlines and transcripts. No one disputes that a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in a state where one in three white males took the oath ran their state. And um, he was a fraud behind all this virtue – signaling you know he said women should be sexually pure he was totally in favor of prohibition they his thugs would go around and break up speakeasies and you know just pull teenagers apart if they were caught in a car kissing it was like the taliban or something he was a con man he was a fraud he was an alcoholic he was a bootlegger and worst of all he was a rapist and a cannibal yeah he was a horrible human being so let's talk about this, this, love, this yeah. lovely young woman who appears to have on the surface a very legitimate relationship with him. She works for him. She works in his office, in his political sphere. He tries to date her. She rebuffs his advances, but he's persuasive, and eventually he gets her to come on a train. Talk to us, Timothy Egan. What, who is this woman? She's only 28 yeah, so years this, old. Where does she come right. from? She's sort of a woman of her age, and, um, you know, she cut her hair in a short bob. She once took a road trip in a car before they had highways or the Lincoln Highway, and she went across the country. She did live at home with her parents. She was a school teacher, and then she ran a state literacy program for the state. But she was a very feisty, independent woman who, did, who felt like she didn't need men to um, tell her what to do. She falls in with this monster, D.C. Stevenson, only because her state job is on the chopping block. And only the Grand Dragon can save this job because he runs the state. And he actually, she didn't go along willingly with him. He kidnaps her. He kidnaps her and puts her on this last train, this midnight train to Chicago. And I don't want to tell you what ultimately happens, but on the train ride to Chicago, he commits a monstrous act. He rapes her and cannibalizes her, and ultimately she does die. But her words outlive her in a court of law. So that's how... 
she eventually does um well again i don't want to give away the ending here it's an unbelievable uh, story it's incredible story yeah you, yeah, when you're reading so. it, and if you read it on Wikipedia, where it's all true, everything that you say is true. As you're reading oh, it, totally you true. can't you can't believe that this really happened. It's it's no, you cannot. It's so terrible. It's a, right. I had to say at the start of the book, just so people would remind to remind them that everything in this story is true. It, I have 30 pages of source notes in the back. Um, and now we've largely forgotten about it. It's sort of fallen into the mist of time. But I think this is one of those stories that help us understand the present. I think it does, too. We're chatting with Timothy Egan and, uh, and Timothy Egan's newest book. Timothy, you have to remind me of the title again. I'm sitting here in Boca, and the book is it's right okay. in front of It's me. called A Fever in the, A Fever in the Heartland. A Fever in the Heartland, that's it. To bring yep. down America. Yeah. yeah, fever in the mm-hmm. heartland. And this idea of a fever in the heartland, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I just saw I, um, I just saw Parade. Have you ever seen Parade? It's on Broadway now. Oh, heard a ton of stuff about it. Yeah, I have not. I'm and, in, and it's a little bit reminiscent of what you're talking about in that Parade brings the 1920s, but in the South, alive in Atlanta. And it's a story of how a bunch of people decided to accuse a Jew of a murder that he never committed. And when the governor ultimately decided to commute his sentence, not pardon him, but make sure that he didn't die, he was going to live in prison a long time, the people took the law into their own hands. They took him out of prison. They hanged him anyway, Leo Frank. And it's a story of this uh, tribal hatred, right? You know, and it's it's not right. the same as your story, but it's reminiscent of the fact that we think of the 20s as a time of flappers and pre-depression. And we just think of it in a different way. And really, there were undercurrents yeah. of a lot of ugly hatreds going on in this country. A lot. Yeah, great point. And I have a, a lot on Leo Frank in my book, the person you mentioned, because it's sort of the dawn of the worst kind of anti-Semitism in the 20th century. I mean, there was a mob that hanged this guy. Um, and th- among the people in that mob were the founders, four of the founders of the modern Ku Klux Klan. They went up to Stone Mountain, Georgia in 1915 and Thanksgiving Eve and looked to the heavens and swore to forever hate Jews, blacks, and immigrants. And Catholics as well. I'm sorry, i got to throw all the range of hatreds in of there. Of course, why but, not? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and that's that's exactly right. That you know that that age has been somewhat mischaracterized as the Gatsby era, and it was a time of frivolity and bath. My granny was a flapper, you know, bathtub gin and women being socially liberated, but also the it was the absolute peak of America's oldest domestic terror group. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Timothy Egan, you write regularly for the New York Times. You write opinions. You're a journalist. You're a world-recognized journalist and an author. As you're writing this book about the 1920s, we're 100 years on in America, and in so many ways, it's a different universe. But right. are you, are you, as somebody who's reporting on what's happening today, are you thinking that this is a story that is more relevant than ever or less relevant than ever? More relevant. And you don't, I'll be honest with you, you don't generally write, I don't generally write a history because, you know, you're going to spend years and years time traveling to that era. So you don't want to spend that much time unless you see something, some greater lessons. I don't go time traveling to on these stories unless I see something that's relevant to today, something I could bring out and hopefully help us understand, you know, a narrative from the past. I got to tell you, this thing just brought chills to me. It, it just, because again, on the surface, it's so much like the music band. It's so everyday, you know, the clan had, uh, barbershop quartets at their rallies. They had a Klan baseball team in the 1920s with KKK stitched across their flannel fronts. Um, they had these kiddies, I mentioned, the little kids go to the Klan dens. They had uh, the lemonade stands, but they were still all about terror. They still lynched people. They still firebombed the homes of you know, priests and nuns and Jewish retailers whom they harassed if they were open on Sunday. They still did this awful stuff. So, I mean, it's the duality of our character. And I'm not one who's, who's you know, completely sour on America and American history. I generally am on the positive side. I believe in our better angels, as Lincoln said. But I think we also have to look at the, the worst angels. And if you look at the worst angels, you understand, you know, why the better angels need to get, the, you know, put the running shoes on and get in gear. Because um, this stuff courses through our history. Yeah, I mean, the Anti-Defamation League says that 2022 and now 2023 are the largest uh, sort of amount of anti-Semitic incidents in this country in decades. I think we can all sort of see that. Uh, We have rhetoric that is reaching into, particularly when it comes to the lesbian and gay and transgender community, that is just reaching into ugly stereotypes and hatred. We, We have a lot of that. If you were to look at the politicians today, are there any that remind you that you would want to call out that remind you of what's gone on with the plan <laughs> well i know what bit of water you're leading this horse to well no um, not necessarily yeah. i really mean that not necessarily because yeah. we have a lot of people who look at the better angels of our politicians and they discard some of their rhetoric and they think it's not relevant i'm curious what you think yeah i mean uh, yeah i'll go right right to it you know there are people you mentioned the adl thing i, I was just so saddened by that report that showed that anti-Semitic attacks are the highest really since they've been keeping track in the mid-1970s. I know. You think we're a pluralistic society. We've gotten over that. My wife is Jewish. I'm an Irish Catholic. Um, We have a mixed marriage. Our kids are mixed mixed faith. Um, But you see this stuff, and it just pains you. And where does it come from? Well, it's the blaming of others. So, you know, Jews are a small, small minority of people in this country. But once again, we have politicians who, in code, they don't quite come out like those people who marched in Charlottesville and said, 
the Jews will not replace us, or those people in Atlanta, the basis of that play, who lynched Leo Frank. But you see it used in code words. And whenever you hear a politician, you know, talk about, you know, replacement or, you know, the, the whites are facing a minority. I mean, we're, we're a nation built on ideas. We're not a nation built on tribal identity. That's the constant back and forth struggle. And I'll just say, you know, <clears throat> the D.C. Stevenson character in some ways, uh, I would say many ways, looks like or we can see echoes of him in the former president. Donald Trump, because Stevenson lied 20 times before he got out of bed. He would tell a lie, and the bigger the lie, the better the lie. The main lie was about himself. He just completely made up this story of who he was. He said he came from money, and he was a native Hoosier, all this. He was none of that. He was just a drifter who rolled into town with a criminal record. And so you see it in people who to tell lies. And here's the number one thing. I'll just leave you with this. If you're a politician in this country, and you have no bottom for your shame. That is, you know, most of us, we have a little radar, a little alarm that goes off when we commit something shameful. But there are people, unfortunately, sociopathically minded people who don't have any shame. And this character in my book, A Fever in the Heartland, uh, had no bottom. And a politician who has no bottom, who will go there, who will threaten judges, who will call women sluts and horrible things, who will call out his enemies, a person who has no bottom and shame can succeed in this country, can get pretty far because there's a power in being so full of shame and not being shamed by that. Mm, isn't that interesting? There's a power yeah. in not being able to recognize your own shame. That's really, yeah, it's because scary. Don't, don't, it's a scary power, people, isn't it? It's yeah, a scary power. Don't you mean most people, their conscience stops them or they feel something? You know, you just you kind of feel awful. You know, your own shame keeps you from doing awful things. But if you have no bottom, there's, you'll cross any line. And Stevenson kept crossing every line. The guy, the, the monster at the center of this book, he just was so willing to go there because no one would stop him. And he had no shame. And ultimately, he commits the ultimate crime you can commit, rape and murder, the crimes you can commit. And the reason was because he thought, you know, who cares? I and when no he shame. gets out of jail, he does it again. And he ends up Absolutely. also he's a yeah. he's a serial sexual molester at seventy one. He's convicted again. Well, I'm glad to see you read all the way to the epilogue, and thank you for that, Lisa. Because he spends thirty some years in prison, and as a seventy one year old man, the very first thing he does is sexually assault a sixteen year old girl. Unbelievable! I mean, I was like, "Are yeah. you kidding me?" Yeah, I'm glad you noted that. I my jaw dropped when I found that in his uh, in his past as I was coursing through this. I mean, it's just you know, I've had so many prosecutors on the show. Linda Fairstein used to come on all the time when she was writing all oh. of her books, and what she used to tell me was, and she was the um, original prosecutor in New York that you know they've had this uh, Mariska Hargitay, the SVU Law and Order, and yes. that's that's mm -hmm. actually based on what what she started that her division started oh. in the DA's office. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, oh yeah. And she told me that of all the research and everything else, that when men commit, and they are men, when men commit these deviant, horrible crimes, uh, pedophilia, rapists, et cetera, that they are, in her opinion, from what she had read, they're impossible to cure. That when they have this particular obsession, 
no matter how much jail time, no matter how much you throw at them, no matter what kind of theology you want to throw at, whatever you think psychology is going to make them better. She said they don't get better and they need to be kept from the rest of us. And this was a, a, a perfect example of somebody who never should have been left out of jail, ever, ever. I, I couldn't agree. And, you know, I, I've covered enough cases as a reporter of sexual sociopaths, and I'm sorry to say I 100% agree with you. Right? I mean, that's what she said. She said they just don't get better, yeah. so they have to be kept from us. And that's the no, end of it. No, it's the deepest, it's the deepest, most violent pathology. And, you know, they did try all these goofy things to, to make them better, and they don't. And that's as you said, the man at the center of a fever in the heartland, after spending 30-some years in jail, the very first thing he does is sexually attack a 16-year-old. So, um, you know, it's sort of what, what gets them out of bed in the morning is this violent, horrible urge. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't go away. Well, anyway, Timothy Egan, on that note, happy Easter and happy Passover to you and your family. So are you celebrating everything? Do you do, you do the uh, Haggadah and then you have the Easter basket on Sunday? What do you do? It's, it's everything everywhere all at once. Okay. Um, yeah, we do. Well, that's <laughs> nice. Passover, yeah, it is. It is. You know, it's, it's what do you do. You have both those traditions you want uh, your kids to know. So that's what we do. Yeah. Well, happy holiday to you. Thank you for writing it, A Fever in the Heartland. Timothy Egan, a pleasure. I love reading your writing. Please come back on the show, and thank you for telling this story. It's a good story. Yeah, Lisa, thank you, and thanks. Uh, hey, go after those di- di- digital tax collectors. I feel the same way. Don't you feel – aren't you a little nervous about that a little bit? I'm a little I nervous am. about that. I am. Yeah. I'm an old-fashioned file by the mail, you guys. Yeah, well, good luck to you because they're not going to let you do okay. that soon. Okay. <laughs> Timothy Egan okay, on the Lisa really Wexler Show. Right. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com. 